1948, the Southern novelist William Faulkner wrote in Intruder in the Dust, For every Southern boy 14 years old, not once, but whenever he wants it, there is the instant when it's still not yet 2 o'clock on that July afternoon in 1863. The brigades are in position behind the rail fence, the guns are laid and ready in the woods, and the furled flags are already loosened to break out. And Pickett himself, with his long oiled ringlets and his hat in one hand, probably, and his sword in the other, looking up the hill, waiting for Longstreet to give the word. Such was the weight and power of events that unfolded on Friday afternoon, July the 3rd, 1863. This is how it came to pass. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. It was the evening of Friday, July 3rd, when Brigadier General John D. Imboden answered a summons to go to his commanding general's headquarters. There he found 56-year-old Robert E. Lee so exhausted he could barely dismount. To the comment, General, this has been a hard day for you. Lee answered, Yes, it has been a sad, sad day to us. Silence followed. It was broken by Lee, who lauded the gallantry of Pickett's men. There was more silence. Then a loud, anguished cry as if in agony. Too bad! Too bad! Oh, too bad! Some 24 hours earlier, the night of July 2nd, 3rd, had been mild. The moon, a little past full. It was so quiet, one of the 19th Massachusetts clearly heard, a good mile from town, the Gettysburg Courthouse clock strike three. Men in blue also heard something else, the rumbling of caissons. Lee once remarked, I plan and work with all my might to bring the troops to the right place at the right time, and with that, I have done my duty. At this early hour, and despite battling diarrhea the day before, Lee was trying to do just that. On Friday, he would attack, and felt confident doing so, perhaps invincible. After all, in two days of battle, his army had wrecked the 1st, 3rd, and 11th Corps and punished the 2nd and 5th. At dawn of the 3rd, he wanted his left to drive through Culp's Hill toward the Baltimore Pike and his center to punch through to the Taney Town Road, but things would not go as he wished. For an early coordinated strike, Pickett's Virginia Division had forced marched six miles but still had three to go. Four more hours were needed to get to the attack staging area, and men in blue did not cooperate. 47-year-old George Gordon Meade gave permission to 12th Corps Commander Major General Henry Slocum to use John Geary's division to regain some ground over on Culp's Hill that had been lost the night before. 
And so, around 4 a.m., 20 Federal cannon would open up, and Geary's division would steal Robert E. Lee's initiative. In the Bible black pre-dawn of that Friday, Lee had met with several of his generals. He had talked with no one face-to-face prior to that. As we mentioned, he had hoped Ewell and Longstreet would attack in unison at 10 a.m., but with Slocum and Geary's attack, that would not be. Longstreet would now be asked to organize an attack on a Union center which had no real entrenchments save a stone wall. The landmark chosen to aim the attack, a copse of oak trees. Lee wanted an Austerlitz, Napoleon's decisive win back in December of 1805. Yet, as soon as their early morning meeting began, Longstreet begged to differ. He announced that his scouts had found a route around the Union left, and he had prepared orders to execute that movement. They had talked of this before, and Lee was no more open to it now than when first it was suggested some two days ago. Longstreet's plan was crushed when Lee pointed with his fist toward Cemetery Hill and said firmly, icily, The enemy is there, and I am going to strike him. To that, Longstreet answered, General, I have been a soldier all my life. I've been with soldiers engaged in fights by couples, by squads, companies, regiments, divisions, and armies, and should know, as well as anyone, what soldiers can do. It is my opinion that no 15,000 men ever arranged for battle can take that position. His response was given in dignified fashion, but it was close to insubordination. Now, Lee could have chosen his 3rd Corps commander, Lieutenant General A.P. Hill, to organize the attack, but he preferred the more experienced Longstreet. Leading the men in the proposed attack fell to 38-year-old Major General George E. Pickett. Years earlier, his admission to the United States Military Academy came through the office of one Abraham Lincoln, and no one in Pickett's presence could speak ill of him. At West Point, of the 59 who graduated in the class of 1846, Pickett was 59th dead last, and for behavior, only five demerits short for expulsion. He wore his hair in perfumed ringlets and was in love with a lady in Lynchburg, Virginia, who was half his age, LaSalle Corbell. Though a peacock, it was hard not to like him. Yet his effort thus far in the war had been spotty and his 5,830-man Virginia division had not been in a major fight in nearly a year. One of its three brigades was under 39-year-old Brigadier General James Lawson Kemper, an attorney before the war. He served 10 years in the Virginia legislature. Despite a politician's tendency for overblown and bombastic oration, he handled his troops well. A second brigade was led by dark-eyed, silent Brigadier General Richard Brooke Garnett, now 44. He had been a Unionist before the war. In fact, he made public speeches against secession, 
Yet when Virginia seceded, so did he. Garnett followed Stonewall Jackson in command of the Stonewall Brigade. Back in March of 1862 at Kernstown, Virginia, he angered Jackson when he ordered the unit low on ammunition and severely pressed to fall back. Jackson wanted him court-martialed, but time never allowed it. And now Jackson was dead, and Garnett, who wanted a chance to clear his name, seemed a wounded man. And to add physical to the mental wound in recent days, he had been kicked by a horse. 46-year-old Brigadier General Lewis Addison Armistead led Pickett's 3rd Brigade, the oldest of Pickett's three brigadiers. Armistead was born in New Bern, North Carolina, shy, silent, a widower. Descended from a Marshall family, his father and four uncles all served in the War of 1812. One, his uncle, Major George Armistead, commanded Fort McHenry when the British tried to take Baltimore in September of 1814. This Armistead was twice bounced from West Point, once when he hit a cantankerous jubil early over the head with a plate. His best friend was at Gettysburg, and in blue, 2nd Corps Commander Major General Winfield Scott Hancock. When secession came, the two were stationed in Los Angeles. There, with divided loyalties, it was a sentimental Armistead who blurted, Hancock, goodbye. You could never know what this has cost me. On this Friday, Armistead was to attack his best friend's position. To cover the right flank of the attacking column and offer support to Pickett's Virginia Division were Brigadier General Cadmus Wilcox's Alabama Brigade and a small brigade of Floridians under Colonel David Lang. Wilcox was efficient, but did carry resentment, having recently been passed over for promotion. But a professional, he would not let it affect his generalship. Lang was temporarily in charge. This, in fact, was his command debut. These two units, elements of A.P. Hill's 3rd Corps, presents an interesting situation. Two-thirds of the Confederate attacking force for that afternoon belonged to Hill's Corps, and a large portion of those troops were from Major General Henry Heath's division. But Heath had been wounded on July 1st, and so command fell to scholarly Brigadier General James Johnston Pettigrew, a member of the University of North Carolina's 1847 graduating class. He stood five foot nine, and contemporaries remembered his high forehead, a prominently domed head that topped a slight build. They remembered his hazel eyes, defined nose, pointed chin, brown hair and beard, which was worn in a Spanish style. His complexion, fair. But because of his love of the outdoors, he almost always appeared sunburned. He was a thinker, a philosopher, an adventurer. Age 35, he had a fine legal mind, could speak and write fluently in four languages, French, German, Italian, and Spanish. He was proficient in Greek and Hebrew. 
His intellectual talent was such that he was plucked from Carolina and offered a professorship at the National Observatory. To Gettysburg, he led a brigade of men who had limited fighting experience. The first day changed all that. His brigade suffered around 40% casualties. The 26th North Carolina, a regiment in that brigade, took 843 men into combat on July the 1st and were reduced to 212. Company E of that regiment was reduced to 12. Company F to 1. The unit should have been reorganized, but because their position was close to the planned attack, they were included. One of the brigadiers under Pettigrew that day was Joseph R. Davis. Before Gettysburg, the 38-year-old nephew of Confederate President Jefferson Davis had no real combat to speak of. Back on the 1st, his command, too, had been mauled, in part because of his leadership. Another Confederate brigade placed under Pettigrew's command that day was Brigadier General James J. Archer's. Captured on July the 1st, his brigade was now under 41-year-old Colonel Burkett Davenport Fry, a West Pointer. He was in Alabama at the start of the war. Now, by July of 1863, he had been wounded three times. Slight of build, quiet in manner, he seemed indestructible and was known as a man of gunpowder reputation. One of his five regiments was the 14th Tennessee. Also chosen for the attack, two North Carolina brigades that were plucked from wounded Major General William Dorsey Pender's command. They were placed under the command of Major General Isaac R. Trimble. He was 61, five years older than Lee. Recovering from a recent wound, he came to Gettysburg with Dick Ewell in the 2nd Corps, and that for Trimble thus far had proven to be a most frustrating experience. His command had, like Pettigrew's brigade on Wednesday, suffered mightily. They, too, had taken some 40% casualties. Combined, Pettigrew and Trimble's men numbered 7,200. Again, of the nine brigades assigned to make the attack, six were from A.P. Hill's 3rd Corps. And that should prompt the question, where was he in all the planning? One of Trimble's brigadiers that day was James Henry Lane, nicknamed Little Jim. He was under 30 years of age. Another intellectual, he was a professor in mathematics and tactics at VMI. The other brigade from Pinder, now under Trimble for the attack, was Alfred M. Scales. Wounded on July the 1st, his five regiments were, for this day, under the command of Colonel William L. J. Lorenz. Two days earlier, this North Carolina brigade lost all but two of their field officers. The left flank of Pettigrew's attacking column would be Virginians under plotting and uninspiring Colonel John M. Brockenbrough, who divided his command that day. He led two of the four units. The other two were under another Virginian, Colonel Robert M. Mayo. Artillery for the assault was given to Colonel Edward Porter Alexander, a native Georgian, an 1857 graduate of West Point. Practical, level-headed, 
Longstreet preferred him to command the some 163 guns rather than bumbling Brigadier General William Nelson Pendleton, who was given the more or less advisory title of General-in-Chief of Confederate Artillery. At 53, he had graduated from the United States Military Academy in 1830, then served for a few years as a second lieutenant of artillery. In 1853, he became an Episcopalian rector in Lexington, Virginia. Most of the Army thought him a joke, called him behind his back Parson Pendleton, or Old Mother Pendleton. His constant mantra, aim low, and may God have mercy on their misguided souls. Impatient subordinates hoped he would be removed from combat duty. Yes, on this day, Lee's attacking force would need salvos, not salvation. Expertise in cannon, not canonization. Around 8.45 a.m. across the way, George Meade was riding home from his headquarters, the Leicester House on the Taney Town Road. To his wife, he wrote, All well and going well with the Army. For one with a short fuse and widely known as an old snapping turtle, this was unusual optimism. Lee, who knew so well his opponents, would have been concerned. The distance for the Confederate attack to reach the enemy? Three-quarters of a mile. The field over which they would march? Treeless plowland, fields of rye, oats, and clover. Sturdy post and plank fences were on each side of the Emmitsburg Road, which ran north-south and diagonally through the battlefield. However, on the Confederate right of this attack, many of the fences had been torn down the day before by Richard Anderson's late afternoon attack. Atop Cemetery Ridge, the stone walls that would offer protection were two or three feet high at the most. Clover carpeted the front of much of the length of the wall. As we've noted, Federal Center was under 39-year-old Winfield Scott Hancock whose command of the Second Corps had been for just three weeks. On day two, he seemed to have been everywhere. Back in 1862 on the Virginia Peninsula, George McClellan commented that he was superb, and so Hancock was so known. His Second Corps had never lost a single color, and with their Corps badge, the Trefoil, or Ace of Clubs, his men proudly proclaimed, Clubs or trumps. With some 5,700 infantrymen in the three depleted divisions, they held about a 500-yard section on Cemetery Ridge between Ziegler's Grove and the Copse of Trees. Hancock's lieutenants were solid. One division was under Brigadier General Alexander Hayes. Though 43, he possessed adolescent-like energy during battle. Fierce and combative, he led from the front. His part of the line ran from Ziegler's Grove south to an angle in the stone wall. When it ended, it was extended by 36-year-old Brigadier General John Gibbon's division. Though a native of Pennsylvania, Gibbon received his appointment to West Point from North Carolina, where he was reared. He had three brothers, 
all in Confederate service. They had disowned him. Always under control, Gibbon was one of the finest Union officers in the Army. Blunt, strict. His line ran from the angle in the stone wall to south of the cups of trees. Gibbon's three brigade commanders were Colonel Norman J. Hall, Brigadier Generals William Harrow and 28-year-old Alexander Stuart Webb, who commanded the only brigade named after a city, Philadelphia. His 69th, 71st, 72nd, and 106th Pennsylvania, however, were under a cloud here. Morale was supposedly down. An observer noted, perhaps unfairly, that the 71st and 72nd Pennsylvania possessed an inward rottenness. In Colonel Norman Hall's brigade, the 7th Michigan, 19th and 20th Massachusetts, back in December of 1862, crossed the Rappahannock at Fredericksburg in pontoon boats. The 20th Massachusetts had cleared streets and taken great loss in doing so. They hoped for payback. Hancock's 2nd Corps did have help. There were five regiments from 44-year-old Major General Abner Doubleday's 1st Corps. One of his units was the 151st Pennsylvania, 100-plus school teachers, led by a principal. They went into battle on July the 1st with 466 men. On the 3rd, they numbered 121 and were led by a captain. There was also Brigadier General George J. Stannard's Vermonters. At 42, he led men who were in the eighth month of their nine-month enlistment. Others referred to them as the nine-monthlings hatched from $200 bounty eggs. Of his five regiments, the 13th, 14th, and 16th Vermont were there. Also intermixed with the infantry, there were batteries, 25 guns, and all under 43-year-old Brigadier General Henry Jackson Hunt, it was Meade's chief of artillery. It was he who had placed the Union guns at Malvern Hill on the peninsula in Virginia, which blew apart Confederate attacks back in the summer of 62. He was also economically efficient. Once he asked, Young man, are you aware that every round you fire costs $2.67? He had some 119 guns. All told, on Cemetery Ridge, Meade had two divisions, totaling six brigades, five regiments, 25 guns, and just under 8,000 men. Robert E. Lee did not believe that force would make a stand. To repeat, Meade's center began at Ziegler's Grove, then continued from Union right to left behind a stone wall which ran north-south. When the stone wall turned west, it ran some 239 feet, then turned south again, creating an angle or salient. Within it, and a little to the south, though not very close to either wall, the cups of oaks, and in front, rocks and underbrush. Around 11 a.m., the fighting over at Culp's Hill had ended, and Meade and his staff returned to inspect the Army's center on Cemetery Ridge. By noon... Most of the clouds had been burned away by the sun. Those that remained in the west were fleecy, cumulus clouds. 
and there was heat, stillness. Some Union soldiers actually tiptoed. They collected firewood, cooked and loaded muskets. Gibbon had Hancock, Meade, and a few others over for a stew made from what was referred to as an old tough rooster. While eating, there were cigars and banter. By 12.30, all of Lee's attacking force was in position, and they whiled away the time much the same way as their counterparts. Some of Kemper's Virginians battled with green apples. And amongst the common soldiers, as they are in every battle, in every century, rumors. One in particular was disturbing. Lee and Longstreet were at odds. About this time, a note was delivered from Longstreet to Alexander. Its contents were about the order to send some 13,000 men across three-quarters of a mile expanse. It read, Colonel, if the artillery fire does not have the effect to drive off the enemy or greatly demoralize him so as to make our effort pretty certain, I would prefer that you should not advise Pickett to make the charge. I shall rely a great deal upon your judgment to determine the matter and shall expect you to let General Pickett know when the moment offers. Aware that as a mere colonel, E.P. Alexander was being shouldered with not only the decision when Pickett should advance, but if he was to advance. And so he wrote back, General, I will only be able to judge of the effect of our fire on the enemy by his return fire. If, as I infer from your note, there is any alternative to this attack, it should be carefully considered before opening our fire, for it will take all the artillery ammunition we have left to test this one, and if the result is unfavorable, we will have none left for another effort. And even if this is entirely successful, it can only be so at a very bloody cost. That prompted another note from Longstreet. Colonel, the intention is to advance the infantry if the artillery has the desired effect of driving the enemies off or having other effects such as to warrant us in making the attack. When that moment arrives, advise General Pickett and, of course, advance such artillery as you can use in aiding the attack. While those unsettling messages flew back and forth, soldiers remembered an immense flock of pigeons which darkened the sky. On Cemetery Ridge, an artilleryman heard the hum of bees and remembered it. There, a lieutenant read aloud the Baltimore Clipper newspaper. And then across the way, a note from Longstreet reached Alexander. Let the batteries open. Order great care and precision in firing. Seconds later, on Seminary Ridge, Captain Merritt B. Buckmiller of the 3rd Company Washington Artillery ordered, Fire. Over at Pennsylvania College, Professor Michael Jacobs noted, It was 1.07 p.m., or maybe it was 1.30 as Confederates remembered it. But what happened, there could be no mistake. There was one shot, a pause, then another. And then the world seemed to go up. 
163 artillery pieces opened up with 102 aimed at the Union Center. As one federal soldier remembered, the earth shook. Along the Union Center, officers and men screamed, down, down. Infantrymen disappeared like a crowded street in a sudden thundering downpour. John Gibbon called for his horse, but one of the first shells killed his orderly, so he ran to the crest of the ridge. Men and horses were hit. Three ammunition chests belonging to Lieutenant Alonzo H. Cushing's Battery A, 4th United States Artillery, blew up simultaneously. An early graduate from West Point in 1861 to meet the crisis, Cushing was indeed in the very midst of one. Lieutenants T. Frederick Brown and Evan Thomas's Union batteries were wrecked. Riderless horses were struck down. Thanks to defective Confederate fuses and cannon trails digging into the earth after repeated firing, the Confederate fire, like great fat drops of rain, drifted eastward as many Confederate cannon overshot into the Federal rear, its artillery reserve, trains, field hospitals. Caught in the plunging fire, 400 yards directly behind the targeted center, Meade's headquarters. The Leicester house was peppered. Its yard plowed, steps taken away, supports to the porch blasted, shells through the door. One narrowly missed the commanding general. Sixteen horses were mangled around the house. Meanwhile, Hancock mounted, and in the midst of the Confederate hell, he and his staff rode slowly along his line. Warned to get down, he replied, There are times when a corps commander's life does not count. The Union response came quickly. Thirty-five Union cannon retaliated. Eventually, over 60 more joined in. Birds flew in confusion. A strange gray cloud mushroomed for neighboring towns to see. However, strangely, thanks to an acoustic shadow, Chambersburg, only 25 miles to the west, couldn't hear it. But towns as far away as 150 miles did. Pedestrians in Baltimore and Washington City looked to the heavens for thunderclouds. Both sides overshot. Kemper's Virginia Brigade suffered the most. Yet, after 15 minutes, many Union soldiers on the ridge thought the fire more noisy than dangerous. During it, Major Thomas W. Osborne suggested to Henry Hunt to stand down, pull some of the guns back to lull the Confederates into thinking they had been knocked out. Order given, it circulated up and down the line. While the acrid smoke and smell of expended black powder fouled the air, couriers rode up to Alexander three times. Should we go? For Alexander, the smoke made vision tough and return fire was constant, but then it slackened. Notes flew back and forth between Alexander, Longstreet, and Pickett. Alexander, all too aware he was caught in the midst of dissension between Lee and Longstreet, was told that several Union guns supposedly had been knocked out, and seeing Brown's battery retire, Alexander wrote Pickett, For God's sake, come quick. The 18 guns are gone. Come quick or my ammunition will not let me support you properly. At 2.55, some 75 minutes after Jeb Stewart's spent 
cavalry had been repulsed to the east. The war's greatest cannonade ended. Comments about its work ranged from immense slaughter, tremendous execution, a display of fireworks, to a waste of powder. Yes, some Union guns had been disabled and crews killed, but flanking guns were operational, and the Federal infantry was in no way demoralized. The greatest artillery duel in the Western Hemisphere probably caused no more than 200 Union casualties, and Hunt's returning fire probably inflicted some 350 Confederate losses. Then, eerily, a second lull. As one soldier put it, a singularly depressing stillness. Incredibly, some Union men actually stood and stretched. Union Brigadier General Alexander Hayes knew full well what was next. Now, boys, look out. You will see some fun. Anticipating the coming assault, Union infantry units shifted. Guns were either replaced or moved forward. In some places in the line, defenders were four deep. 71st Pennsylvania moved to where Cushing's smashed battery could no longer defend at the angle and the stone wall. Young Cushing, cruelly hit by shrapnel in his groin and genitals, refused to leave the field. In fact, he asked permission to move his three remaining guns forward, and he was going to stay with them. And while this went on, Pickett took Alexander's note to Longstreet. He found his commanding general sitting on a snake rail fence near the center of the line on Seminary Ridge. General, shall I advance? Longstreet turned his face away and did not answer. Later he told Alexander that he knew the charge must be made, but he could not bring himself to give the order. After a few awkward seconds, Pickett said, I'm going to move forward, sir. Professor Michael Jacobs of Pennsylvania College noted the time was 3 o'clock. It was 87 degrees. In New York City, the stock market reported its closing prices. The New York Central Railroad was up one and a quarter points. And 900 miles away, U.S. Grant and John C. Pemberton met under a small oak tree between the lines to discuss the surrender of Vicksburg, Mississippi. Here at Gettysburg, foot soldiers were about to decide a battle and maybe a war. Pickett alerted his officers. Men rose to their feet. There were reports of hymns, prayers, and, of course, instructions. Advance slowly, with arms at will. No cheering, no firing, no breaking from common to quick step. Dress on the center. Then, at the moment of truth, last-minute speeches. From Pickett, up, men, and to your post. Don't forget today that you are from old Virginia. From Lewis Armistead, men, remember your wives, your mothers, your sisters, and sweethearts. Johnston Pettigrew turned to Colonel James K. Marshall, who on this day commanded Pettigrew's old brigade and said, Now, Colonel, for the honor of the good old North State, forward. It was a few minutes after three. 
And Longstreet, who was concerned about Alexander's ability to support the attack, approached his artillery chief. The answer was enough to rouse Longstreet for one last time to perhaps stop the attack. As Alexander remembered it, Longstreet said, Go and halt Pickett right where he is and replenish your ammunition. But Alexander explained it would take an hour or two, and by that time the enemy would recover from whatever effect his cannonade had caused. Realizing it was all committed, Longstreet said slowly, pausing between phrases as if he were talking to himself. I don't want to make this attack. I believe it will fail. I do not see how it can succeed. I would not even make it now, but that General Lee has ordered and expects it. Alexander was stunned, and then Pickett's troops came striding past. It was 3.10 in the afternoon. Forward! Guide center. March. Pickett's men moved. Left to right, Garnett and Kemper in one double line of battle. Armistead's brigade about 100 yards to the rear. Terrain favored their advance. Swales and the post and rail fences had been taken down the day before. To the Confederate left, Pettigrew and Trimble's men moved some 50 yards to emerge from the cover of the woods. Davis's brigade missed the start, but raced to catch up. Brock and Bro's Virginians were even slower to catch up. Finally, there were three lines and spaced like Pickett's men. Although Pickett had ordered officers on foot, most remained mounted. Armistead was not but he had placed his black hat on the tip of his sword so his men could see him. The Virginians moved forward and headed at a 25-degree angle toward the enemy. Five minutes later, the Federals could see the entire attacking force of some 13,000 men, a vast sea of butternut and gray ebbing its way out into the fields in front of Seminary Ridge. Sun glinting off polished bayonets, 110 steps per minute, 30-inch stride, about 100 yards a minute. A member of the 126th New York wrote, Beautiful, gloriously beautiful, did that vast array appear in the lovely valley. To steady his men, Brigadier General Alexander Hayes ordered his men to their feet and put them through the manual of arms. Henry Hunt, chief of artillery, also had a response. His guns from Ziegler's Grove south to Little Round Top opened up. And great bloody gaps now appeared in the Confederate parade ground formations. But lines were dressed and on they came. Pickett's men now began a series of left obliques to link up with Pettigrew's men. And it was done admirably under fire. But on the right... Kemper's brigade took fire from front and right, and Garnett's brigade, a captain in the 28th Virginia, saw his son drop. He paused to tenderly kiss the body, lay it out, then raised his sword and went on. At about 3.18, Pickett's men hit a swale, where hidden from the enemy they dressed ranks. Pettigrew's men were not hit that badly by Union artillery, but on their extreme left, Brockenbro and Mayo's Virginians were catching it from 29 guns. 
Still, most of them moved past a little sunken road that ran through the open fields. Then they, too, reached a swale. About halfway across, Federal infantry prepared for collision. Colonel Franklin Sawyer took 160 men of the 8th Ohio and 75 of the 125th New York and moved forward. They fired on Brockenbrough's exposed left, and it dissolved. Lane's North Carolina Brigade, the 7th, 18th, 28th, 33rd, and 38th, moved left oblique to try to ease the threat. But Brockenbrough and Mayo's Virginians broke and headed for the rear. It unnerved some Confederates, for they were not used to seeing men break in this army. Back along Seminary Ridge, Lieutenant Colonel Arthur L. Fremantle of Her Majesty's Coldstream Guards found Longstreet and gushed, I wouldn't have missed this for anything, only to be abruptly answered. The devil you wouldn't. I would like to have missed it very much. We've attacked and been repulsed. Look there. He spoke of Kemper's right, which withered from intense fire on two fronts. Longstreet issued orders for Pickett to call up Wilcox and Lang's brigade for support. About this time, Pickett and Pettigrew's line merged. The last Union skirmishers fired and raced back to Cemetery Ridge. When they did so, Federal artillery now changed to canister. And when the first blast ripped into Confederate masses, a great moan went up. Formations vanished. Confederate soldiers begged officers to alter orders, let them fire back. Then came a new concern for Pickett's Virginians. Stannard's Vermonters moved to further punish Kemper's right flank. Instinctively, Kemper's men drifted left. Meanwhile, Fry's Alabamians and Tennesseans struggled mightily with the sturdy post and flank fences. Unable to tear them down, many climbed over the top and became easy targets. Nineteen minutes into the attack, the Confederate infantry reached the Emmitsburg Road. Protected in the sunken roadbed, a momentary lull and units redressed. With no fences to break up their rank and file, Kemper's men crossed the road, but their drift to the left meant they continued to receive intense fire from front and flank, and in it, Kemper went down. From the rough ground in front of the copse of trees to the angle made by the stone wall, a narrow 200-yard front, all of Pickett's and one half of Fry's men were now massed into a murderous, bloody alley. In front of them, at the angle, a line of 375 Union infantrymen spread over 500 feet and outnumbered eight to one. Columns of Confederates pressed them, but Union fire was so great that men advanced half-stooped as if in a hard wind or rain. One soldier described it all as a wild, kaleidoscopic world. Someone heard a Confederate lieutenant shout, Home, boys! Remember, home is just over those hills. Though regiments were blasted and many were down, on the wave of butternut and gray came, now in ranks 15 to 30 deep. The balance of the battle at the angle was at hand. Raising the rebel yell, Confederates surged up and over the wall, breaking the 69th and the 71st Pennsylvania and the 59th New York. Could it be... The desperate nature of the whole attack, could it be that despite Longstreet's misgivings, all would turn out right? The answer was immediate. 
no other Union regiments fell back. Instead, the 72nd Pennsylvania and 106th New York moved forward and rallied broken units. Yet, Armistead led some over the wall, shouting, Come on, boys, give them the coal still. Who will follow me? Anywhere from 100 to 300 men followed. They swarmed past two of Cushing's guns at the wall. In this hurricane of battle, every man acted on his own. Men under Gibbon certainly had to, for he was down. Cushing shouted orders for one last round to be fired, and as he jerked the lanyard, the young artillery officer was instantly killed when a bullet passed through his open mouth, dead at 22. The lines were now entangled. Men from Tennessee, Alabama, and Virginia fought desperately with men from Pennsylvania and New York, and in doing so, their corps commander Hancock was everywhere, rallying men and ordering up reinforcements. Infantry and artillery converged on the Confederate breakthrough. Even as all raced toward the threatened Union position, Pettigrew and Trimble's survivors moved forward, threatening the Union line to the left of the bloody angle. With most of Davis and Brockenbrough's men broken, Pettigrew's exposed left wing was raked before many could even fire their first volley. Where two Union gaps had presented themselves to Pickett's men, the Federal presence in front of Pettigrew and Trimble was deep, solid. Union fire there was so intense on that front that perhaps two-thirds of Pettigrew's men were pinned down in the bed of the Emmitsburg Road. Yet some, incredibly, moved in clumps toward Hayes' men from New York, Delaware, New Jersey, and Connecticut, and moved right into the teeth of double and triple federal canister. Men like Lieutenant Colonel John A. Graves, who led about 150 from the 47th North Carolina, and soldiers from the 11th Mississippi, and others, clots of Pettigrew's men who clawed their way forward from the roadbed toward the stone wall. As they did, Alexander Hayes ordered 1,700 Union muskets and 11 cannon to fire simultaneously. Men in Captain William A. Arnold's 1st Rhode Island Light Battery A remembered firing double-shotted canister into Confederates at point-blank range. Unbelievably, three in number from North Carolina made it to the stone wall. Awed Federals held their fire and one screamed over the den, Come over on this side of the Lord. Helped over? Yes, they were captured, but they were alive. By now, the Confederate attack had lost momentum, and Hayes, Hancock, and Stannard sensed it. Around 3.50, orders to execute the classic defensive tactic to counter a frontal attack, double envelopment. 900 Vermont rifles stormed on the Confederate right, and the 8th Ohio, 125th and 126th New York, and Woodruff's battery swung round the Confederate left. The desperate Confederate situation made worse by a paralysis in command. Wilcox's 1050 Alabamians and Lang's 400 Floridians moved forward on the right, but they were too few and 10 minutes too late. And it didn't help that Pickett nor his staff gave little, if any, guidance where they were to go. The last spasmodic events in the charge made Louis Armistead and Isaac Trimble casualties. In the angle, 
Armistead mortally wounded, and to his left, Trimble suffered a severe leg wound. Turning over command to Brigadier General James H. Lane, Trimble wrote in his message that if the troops he had the honor to command today for the first time couldn't take that position, all hell couldn't take it. The casualty list did not only include Confederate officers. Hancock was hit in his right thigh by a bullet that slammed through the pommel of his saddle and then carried itself splinters of wood and a bent ten-penny nail four inches into his groin. Yet, though Hancock and Gibbon were downed with double envelopment of both Confederate flanks, the 71st and 72nd Pennsylvania now stormed back into the angle and in hand-to-hand fighting drove back those few Confederates that had made it over the stone wall. It was now around four o'clock in the afternoon, and the so-called greatest infantry charge in American history was history. The carnage to both attackers and defenders, frightening. Alexander Hayes had had two horses shot from under him, and 14 of his 20 orderlies were down. He and surviving staff members grabbed some 28 captured Confederate battle flags and trailing them in the dirt rode up and down the Union line. Meade and his 19-year-old son, who served on his father's staff as a captain, rode up with a look of surprise. What? Is the assault already repulsed? Thank God! Hurrah! A correspondent interjected, Ah, General Meade... You are in very great danger of being President of the United States. Across the way, Lee moved forward and met the blasted survivors that staggered back to Seminary Ridge. To Pickett, Lee said calmly, General Pickett, place your division in rear of this hill and be ready to repel the advance of the enemy should they follow up their advantage. And the broken officer spit back, General Lee, I have no division. Armistead is down, Garnett is down, and Kemper is mortally wounded. Incredibly, seeing Lee and understanding the emotion he was struggling to control, a man from the 24th Virginia pleaded, General, let us go at it again. To a wounded Brigadier General Johnston Pettigrew, Lee said, General, I am sorry to see you wounded. Go to the rear. And over and over to countless men and officers, my fault, my fault. And soon afterward, to Cadmus Wilcox, Lee took him by the hand and told him, Never mind, General. All this has been my fault. It is I that have lost this fight, and you must help me out of it in the best way you can. By 6 p.m., mop-up was complete. At the angle, a human holocaust. 42 dead and some 300 wounded. Representative of the hail of federal fire, along the roadbed, in front of the position where Pettigrew and Trimble's men advanced, a fence board 16 feet long and 14 inches wide was found. It had 836 bullet holes. Confederate casualties, 1,190 dead. 3,350 captured, all removed permanently from Confederate ranks. Over 2,000 were wounded. Of 13,000 who made the advance, some 6,600 were down. 
In Pickett's division, Garnett was killed, Armistead mortally wounded, Kemper wounded and captured. Thirteen of Pickett's colonels went in. All were casualties. Seven were killed, one mortally wounded, and all others wounded. Total divisional loss, 67%. In Pettigrew's original North Carolina Brigade, which was led by James Marshall, who was killed in the charge, casualties to every field officer save one. The division Pettigrew led that day, 60% casualties. For Trimble, 62%. We've made much of the preponderance of North Carolina and Virginia infantrymen in the attack, which was just over 80%. But other southern states paid dearly as well, like the 14th Tennessee, which crossed those fields under Colonel Fry. In 1861, the 14th marched out of Clarksville, Tennessee, 960 men strong. 365 made it to Gettysburg. 60 were left after July the 1st. And by the end of July the 3rd, the 14th Tennessee numbered three. The University Grays of the 11th Mississippi, the color company of the 38th North Carolina, and Company F of the 26th North Carolina lost every man. In Meade's contested center, Webb's Philadelphia Brigade lost 44% of 940. One of its regiments, the 69th Pennsylvania, took 47% losses, but at a cost of some 2,300, the Army of the Potomac had broken the Pickett-Pettigrew-Trimble charge and claimed its first victory over the Army of Northern Virginia. For Major General George Gordon Meade, Union losses at Gettysburg were 22,813, of which 3,149 were killed, about 25% of his army casualties. For the entire campaign, just over 30,000. The 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 11th Corps suffered 90% of those Union losses. And 19 generals in blue had either been killed or wounded. And yet, some powerful arithmetic. All of Meade's losses were made up by July the 20th, thanks to new volunteers and the draft. The Army of the Potomac. Only 17 days after appalling casualties at Gettysburg, numbered again over 105,000 men. For Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia, 22,625 casualties, 4,536 dead. For the entire campaign, 27,125, 33% of his force. Of that number, 17,250 were dead or captured and therefore removed from Confederate rolls. Of 171 Confederate regiments at Gettysburg, 78 or 46% suffered casualties to officers in command. Of Lee's 52 Confederate generals that crossed the Potomac, 17 were casualties of some sort, 18 colonels. To put all those numbers into perspective, a telling stat offered by Professor Alan C. Gelso in his 2013 work, 
Gettysburg, the last invasion. He wrote, The Army of Northern Virginia suffered something comparable to two sinkings of the Titanic. The 2001 attack on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, ten repetitions of the Great Blizzard of 1888, and two Pearl Harbors. Or, the Confederates at Gettysburg sustained two and a half times the losses taken by Allied armies in Normandy from D-Day through August of 1944. The picket Pettigrew Trimble charge has been called the greatest infantry charge in American history. It was also the doomed assault that broke the offensive back of Lee's army. Of the attack, the 11th Virginia's Captain J.T. James wrote, We gained nothing but glory and lost our bravest men. William Faulkner wrote that after Gettysburg, and he might have added Vicksburg, which surrendered the next day, the war was a long walking backward slowly. On July the 4th, in a driving rainstorm that had to match Confederate emotions, Lee turned south. His train of wounded stretched for 17 miles. One retreat route took a Confederate column through a little community named Waterloo and lacking offensive punch, later to roads that led to the wilderness, Spotsylvania Courthouse, the North Anna, Petersburg, and eventually, inevitably, Appomattox. While fighting raged at the front, Loved ones back home fought their own battles. They worried about loved ones far away and tried to cope and find meaning to an all-consuming event, the American Civil War. When we next gather, we'll spin the stories, acknowledge the efforts, and detail the personalities of those on the northern home front who wrestled with and against the far-reaching effects of a nation at war with itself. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening.